0: We are going to read from the Bible. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke today. If you want to turn there, this is where Jesus calls his first disciples. If you're using a pew Bible, this is going to be on page 860. I verified that. Read with us now. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of God.
1: Good morning again, church. Every week we get to gather like this, together, is a sweet gift from the Lord. I hope you recognize that now more than ever. Last week we started our January series called Deeper. Deeper. This is a time of the year where many of us are thinking through goals and uh, aspirations for the new year. Maybe they're physical goals or vocational goals or spiritual goals, we simply want to help you think through what it looks like, what it means to live as a Christian in 2022, to grow deeper in our walk with Christ. Because the truth is, without intentionality, we will not grow spiritually. I think we know that, but to hear it Articulated is helpful for, to us. We, we, we just have to acknowledge nobody drifts into godliness. There is no autopilot for the Christian life. And so, whether you're 5 or 25 or 65 or 85 or 105, there is no autopilot. It takes intentionality. We want to help equip you, and that's what this series is meant to do as we begin the year off, as we think through an area which is of greatest significance in your life. I say greatest on purpose. Paul says this in First Timothy 4.8, for while bodily training is of some value, meaning there is value to it, it is good. Go to the gym, work on your health, work on your on your nutrition, awesome. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So deeper. Deeper in your devotion to Christ. Deeper in your intimacy with Christ. Deeper. Last week we looked at growing deeper in prayer. We begin our year with a week of prayer because we know we need Jesus more than we need anything else that we need him because apart from him we can do nothing today we delve into deeper confession deeper confession you might be thinking confession is that really so important to my growth in christ that it merits a whole sermon yes that's the answer that's my answer if you read the bible you'll find this recurring theme that that this is the theme. If you read the Bible, over and over you find this theme, that it, if you want to move forward in your relationship with God, it will often feel like you're moving backwards. If you want to move forward in your relationship, and I mean, whether you're, maybe you're not a Christian, you're like, I need to take a step toward Jesus. And maybe you're a Christian, you're like, I want to grow deeper in my walk. If you want to grow in your relationship with God, if you want to move forward, it will often feel like you're moving backwards. It's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Over and over, Jesus will say, if you humble yourself, if you lay yourself low, then I will exalt you. You will experience more of my grace. If you feel broken and crushed by life's circumstances, God says, then I give you a greater sense of my intimacy. If you want to follow Jesus, he says, you must deny yourself, die to self, take up a cross and follow him. If you want to be great in service to others, you must become the lowliest servant of all. Do you see the upside down nature of the kingdom of God? And now I get it. It sounds strange, right? Does God just want us to be miserable? Like, is he just trying to keep us laid low? And no, not at all. God wants us to experience unimaginable joy in him. He wants us to know and to experience his unconditional love and grace. But he knows that the pathway to experiencing those things is by first acknowledging our desperate need of him. It's why Jesus said, I came for the sick, not those who think they're healthy. Because he knows that unless we see our sickness for what it is, we'll never run to him as a doctor. And so the way forward in our spiritual growth will often feel like we're going backwards. Feel like it, but we're not. I got first-hand experience of this principle just this past week. My family went to Virginia for a few days to enjoy some much-needed time together. We had been sick during the holidays, and we were stuck at home, and so we were, you know, let's get away just for two days. We were about three hours away in Virginia and uh, enjoyed our time, and we were on our way back And we checked the road situation and it had had been right after the snowstorm and we discovered that there's this large stretch of I-95, about a 40 to 50 mile stretch, that was shut down due to the snow, due to accidents, and there were motorists on that stretch that were stuck there for 17, 18, 19 hours. I'm looking on the Maps app and I realize that's the exact way I need to go to get home. I, I cannot get home unless I go through that stretch of Virginia, and normally I take I-95. And so I go to this app, that my trusted app, that helps me kind of get around traffic, and it calculated this route that was so off the normal route that I that I thought I, it had messed up. I was relooking. Really Where are you taking me? How could this possibly be the way home? Because the general direction I needed to go was north and east. But there were long stretches of the road where the directions had us going south and west. I kid you not. It led us to these backwood roads that were so narrow and so barely plowed. And, and I, I'm serious, trees had fallen. People were actively cutting the trees down that were on the road. We're zigzagging, going both sides of the road to get around trees and snow. It was so bad. Several times my family literally said, we need to turn around, Dad. This is not the right way. We're literally going to die on this back road and no one's going to know where we are. And I would check, every time I would check, is there another way? Show me the way, map app, show me the way. And every time it would basically, without saying it in words, tell me, there's no other way. You either are stuck on 95, or you go down and this way in order to go up and that way.
2: And so in order to get home, we had to take roads that led us away from home. But we made it. We turned a three-hour drive into a six-hour drive, but we made it.
1: Often, that's what the Christian life is like. If you're going to grow deeper in your walk with Christ, it will sometimes feel like you're going backwards. In Luke 5, we're going to learn that confession, which feels so strange and feels so foreign if, we, if it feels like we're walking forward, confession is the path forward to experiencing deeper intimacy, deeper freedom,
2: and deeper purpose in Christ. Let's look at this. Luke chapter 5, lesson number one
1: that we see here in this text. To follow Jesus means you trust and obey Him even when you don't agree with him. To follow Jesus means you trust and obey him even when you don't agree with him. We picked up the story in Luke's gospel with Jesus ministering in the region of Galilee. It's in northern Israel. He's already performed miracles. He's already been teaching large crowds. And now in Luke 5, another large crowd is formed as Jesus is teaching by, it says, the Lake of Gennesaret, which is another term for the Sea of Galilee, which you're probably more familiar with that term the Sea of Galilee Jesus spent a lot of time ministering around this sea around this lake and we read in verse 2 that Peter and the rest of his crew Simon Peter and the rest of his crew had been fishing all night that was actually the best time to fish in the deeper cooler waters of the Sea of Galilee but they didn't catch a single thing So please understand, these men have come in after being awake all night when everyone else was sleeping, and they're exhausted, and they're discouraged. They weren't sport fishing. You get that, right? They're not like catching fish and being like, Oh, look, I got the biggest one. All right, I let it go. No, this was their livelihood. They needed to catch fish in order to pay their bills, in order to survive. But after a bust of a night, they set out their nets that morning and the tackle so that it would dry during the day. And it says that the crowd was so big as Jesus was teaching that Jesus asked Peter to borrow his boat. Take me back out so I can teach from the boat. I need more space. They're crowding in on me. And he gets on the boat, and he, and he gets out a little bit into the water, and, 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 his, and his voice would echo and reverberate through the water, and it would help kind of amplify his voice. And so that's what Peter does. Peter obliges. I, I think he's listening to Jesus even. Even though he's tired, he's frustrated, he's annoyed, but he's listening to Jesus. Back in chapter 4, verse 39... Jesus has already healed Peter's mother-in-law when she was ill. Peter has already witnessed the power and authority and the uniqueness of Jesus. But he is not ready for what Jesus is about to say in verse 4. Look at verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, talking about Jesus, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing.
2: But at your word, I will let down the nets. You can hear some attitude in Peter's response, can't you? He's clearly annoyed.
1: Listen, have you ever had someone who's inexperienced in your field try to tell you how to do your job? I can assure you, as a pastor, that has never happened to me. So I don't know what that's like. (laughs) I've I've had several church members in my home who who are experts at renovations and and repairs. I mean, these guys are brilliant, and and I and I'm watching them work, and I it is so hard to resist asking them why are you doing it this way and why are you doing it that way. But sometimes I I just can't help it, and I want to learn, and I want to I want to delve, and and they got to be so annoyed. Just let me do my job, man. You do your job. Go study the Bible. I'll fix your bathroom. (laughs) Peter is an experienced fisherman. Jesus is not. He's a carpenter. He's a handyman. Peter spent all night fishing. Jesus literally just got into the boat. You can at least sympathize with Peter's annoyance to Jesus' suggestion that he just try throwing the net out one more time. Peter was fine with Jesus' teaching. He was even fine with with Jesus borrowing his boat. But when it came to fishing, that was Peter's expertise. And Jesus was invading Peter's domain. Jesus is teaching Peter and the other is a profound lesson because he's about to call him to leave everything and follow him. You see, to be a follower of Jesus, you need to be able to say to him, my whole life belongs to you. My work, my family, my money, my dreams, my sexuality, my retirement, my hobbies. Is there something in your life
2: that you would be annoyed if Jesus said, give me control over that thing right there. Peter may have been annoyed. He may have questioned Jesus' understanding of fishing. But what does he do? He listens and he obeys. He says, but at your word,
1: Master, we've already tried and caught nothing. Just to remind you, I've toiled all night, but at your word, I'll lay down the nets. I'll do it again. I'm tired and I'm exhausted and you know nothing about fishing, but at
2: your word, I will do what you say. Have you ever been confused by some teaching in the Bible?
1: Or have you ever flat out said, I don't like this teaching of the Bible? Jesus makes it clear right here to these newly called disciples who are going to follow him all the way to the cross. He makes it very clear. The only reason that you need to trust me and obey me is simply because I said so. You might not think obeying God in this particular command or that particular teaching is very practical. You might think that, you know what? If I live this out, it's going to annoy my coworkers. It might even cost me a friendship. It might even cost me my job to hold to this teaching of the Bible. But are you willing to say, at your word, Jesus, I will obey? at your word, I will trust you with this, with my money. With uh, At your word, I will accept your teaching on marriage and sexuality. At your word, I will I will give you my emotional life, my mental life. At your word. Because listen, if you're not willing to do that, then you're not really looking to Jesus as Lord.
2: You're just simply allowing Jesus to be your advisor. Unless there's an area of your life where you have committed
1: to obey Him even without all your questions answered, then you're not following Jesus as Lord. You're just using Him as a consultant. And listen, Jesus never ran around saying, let me give you some good advice.
2: He never went around saying, let me help you make your life a little bit better. He commands. He speaks. And he says, do you trust me? Will you obey? This is what it looks like to go deeper with Jesus. You trust
1: his heart, even though you don't always understand his ways. I'm asking in this first point, do you need to confess an area of your life or a
2: teaching of Jesus where you have been unwilling to trust and obey? Lesson number two. In light of God's holiness, you will increasingly feel the weight of your sinfulness.
1: Back out they go for one more cast of the nets, it tells us. And what happened next was completely unexpected. As soon as the nets hit the water, they are brimming with fish, right? They get so full that it says the nets are breaking apart and then these boats are sinking. These are 27 foot boats, seven foot wide and they're bringing these nets in and the boats are literally starting to sink. I mean, clearly this is not just beginner's luck for Jesus, right? Don't you hate it? When I go fishing and you got new people and they go out and they're like, oh, look, I, I caught a fish. Wow, I don't even know what I did. This is not Jesus, right? He had performed a miracle. The fish were nowhere to be found at night. And in
2: this moment, Jesus supernaturally draws them into the nets. But what happens next is more surprising. Verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell
1: down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful
2: man, O Lord. Peter witnesses the miracle. But he doesn't just see the glory and majesty of Jesus. He sees his own heart. Isn't that interesting?
1: Isn't it amazing that Jesus performs this incredible miracle and immediately Peter realizes that the point of the miracle is not the fish. The point is to teach him about who he is in light of who Jesus is.
2: Peter's not the only one who sees the glory of the Lord and immediately is confronted
1: with his own sin. He's not the only one. You might remember the prophet Isaiah gets a vision of the Lord, right? I saw the Lord, Isaiah 6, high and lifted up. And he says, and the angels were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then you know how how Isaiah responds? Immediately he says, This woe is me, for I am lost, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of hosts. Confession, repentance, and awareness of his own sin in light of God's glory. Job had the same experience right? After laying out chapter a chapter of his complaints of, toward God, if he's like, listen, if I could just get God in front of me, I could argue my case like in a courtroom. And Job's like, I would win. I have a strong case. And God shows up and is like, Job, you want to know who you're talking to? You want to know who I am? You want to know my ways? And he shows up in great power and, sl- and splendor. And Job then immediately, immediately says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore,
2: I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. We need to understand, seeing God in his holiness immediately makes us aware of our sinfulness. This is what happens to Peter.
1: He sees the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. He witnesses the kind of glory and that gives him the clearest sense of his own sinful heart. And that's why he cries out to Jesus, depart from me. Leave. Leave. I'm a sinful man. I don't, I can't even be in your presence. This is Peter's confession. He is so overwhelmed by the sense of his own sin that he's real, he realizes I'm not even worthy to be in the same boat
2: as you, Jesus. And it's my boat. Peter understands that before him stands God. He's beginning to
1: understand. Before him stands God in the flesh. Holiness embodied. And what that draws out is the extent of his own depravity. His lack of holiness. His sinfulness. And that's what he's repenting of. Some people have questioned, maybe he's just repenting of of not trusting Jesus at his word, right? He gave him a little bit of attitude. I'm sorry I gave you attitude. No, he's not
2: repenting of a particular sin. He's repenting from being a sinner. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to have to get to the same point as Peter here. This is what I mean when
1: I say to move forward. It might feel like you move backwards. You must admit, I am a sinful man, Jesus. I am a sinful woman. I am a sinful boy. I am a sinful girl. I recognize that. And as surprising as it sounds, if you're going to keep growing deeper as a follower of Jesus, not just as a one-time thing, but if you're going to keep growing into him, you must continually have this posture Because being a Christian doesn't mean you repent at once in the beginning of your Christian life
2: and then that's it. Martin Luther. Remember he nailed those 95 theses on the
1: church doors in Wittenberg that ignited the Protestant Reformation. He wrote 95 theses, 95 statements that he thought, this is what I need to share with the Pope. This is what's going to transform Christianity as we know it. And the very first one, here's what he wrote, quote, when our Lord and Master Jesus
2: Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance.
1: You see what he's saying? The Christian life is a life of repentance. A life of repentance simply means a turning around. The the word in the Greek means a change of mind. It means you were going this way and you need to turn and go back a different way. I was going this way, which is a selfish way, which is a way just towards my own sin. Now I turn back to Jesus. I turn back to God. I turn back to the way that I I know is the way to life. I'm willing to do that. That's repentance. The Christian life is where, it's, where we continually do that. We continually make that turn. You see, the deeper your awareness of sin, your own sin, the greater your experience of God's cleansing and
2: transforming grace. We show this graph here often because it captures this lesson so well.
1: The more you see your sinfulness... The deeper, and, and listen, if, you, if you've been walking with Jesus for 30, 40 years, you shouldn't feel like, you know what? I'm much holier than before. I'm really thankful for that. You're, you're likely, if you're growing deeper in the way you should, you're likely experiencing new ways that your heart is sinning that you didn't even see before. And so as you see your own sinfulness, as a deeper sense of it, what happens is, as you see God's holiness... More and more, you see your own sinfulness, and that gap gets wider and wider. And it should feel almost like Peter, like, ah, what do I do? Or the Apostle Paul,
2: who can save me from this life of death? But that's where the answer is right in the middle there that's the cross.
1: As you see God's holiness and see your sinfulness, the cross gets bigger and bigger. Your understanding of God's grace grows. Your experience of His forgiveness, of His freedom, of His transforming and cleansing grace grows and grows and grows. Uh, It's not that the cross gets bigger. It's your understanding of what the cross accomplished gets bigger and grows deeper. And that's how you appreciate Jesus more and more, even as you see Your own failures, your own struggles.
2: Which leads to the next lesson, which is vital on the heels of
1: that lesson. Lesson number three your sinfulness invokes in Jesus' heart an irresistible and unrelenting love
2: that draws him even closer. This is where it seems counterintuitive. Here's the danger of having our sin exposed. When your sin is exposed, how do you feel? Unworthy, right? Guilty shame starts to take over
1: and we think just like Peter I need to run away from Jesus I need to get away from this kind of white hot holiness I, I I can't be in his presence I see that now and that's what Peter tries to do he's confronted with his sin rightfully so but his conclusion was that because of his sin he can't be around Jesus he can't have a relationship with Jesus and we can sympathize with Peter in this When you and I see sin for what it is, a rejection of God and a treasuring of some idol more than God, it is only natural for you and I to feel like, well, I don't deserve to be in God's presence today. Maybe another day. We'll try again tomorrow, but today I'm done. This week I'm done. I've blown it. You might even use scripture to back that, kind of to fuel that, that thinking, right? God can't be in the presence of sin. I'm a sinner, so he can't be in my presence. So I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm alone. But what you're missing in that thinking, in that moment, is something massively important. Listen to me. Your sin is the very reason Jesus came down. He came to bring you close to God by dying on the cross for your sins. He came to restore your relationship to God in spite of your sins. That's why we read earlier the Gospel Proclamation, if we confess our sin, He is faithful just to, to forgive us and cleanse us. He wants us to be restored. We think our sinful hearts repulse Jesus and drive Him away. When in fact, our sinful hearts, as Christians are what evoke the greatest compassion and the greatest love in
2: Jesus, compelling him to draw even closer to us. Do you realize that? Do you understand that?
1: How does Jesus respond to Peter in Luke 5 when he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man? Does Jesus say, Peter, you're actually right. You're a dirty, rotten
2: scoundrel. Get out the boat, man. No. No. Notice what he says. Verse 10. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. Don't you love that? I not only won't depart...
1: I literally came down for for you to confess that. I literally came, I'm going to die for you to to, to do the very thing I'm about to tell you. Don't be afraid. I'm not only going to not depart, I'm going to draw closer to you. I'm going to give you a new calling, Peter. I'm going to give you a new calling, Christian. I'm going to give you a new identity rooted in me. You'll be catching men, not fish. You'll be doing something brand new because of me, for me, Me working through you. This is the
2: essence of grace. God loving us when we least expect it and least deserve it. We need a renewal of our hearts and minds to understand this. To understand how Jesus sees us
1: and how he responds to our confession of sin. Yes, our our sin hurts his heart. There's no question about it. But the deeper we go into our relationship with Christ, the more conscious we are of sin, it will actually drive Jesus closer and us closer. This is what happened to Peter. This is exactly what happened to Peter. Peter spent three years with Jesus as a disciple, witnessing miracles, listening to his teaching, experiencing God's glory. But Peter also blew it many times. One time he rebuked Jesus and said, Jesus, uh, you're kind of crazy, dude, because you're predicting your own death. And Jesus was so upset, he called called Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You don't know what I'm talking about. When Jesus was arrested, Peter's cutting off some guy's ear, trying to save Jesus, thinking he's going to be the hero. He even denies knowing Jesus three times. Here's a man who has been confronted with the depth of his own failure repeatedly. But there's this interesting account in John chapter 21. Luke 5 is the beginning of the calling of Peter as a disciple. You go to the end of the Gospel of John, and there's this interesting parallel to Luke 5. Jesus has already died, and he's already risen from the dead. And what does Jesus do? You think, he's now the resurrected king. Where does he go? He goes after Peter right after he denied him.
2: He literally pursues Peter. And where's Peter? He's on the same Sea of Galilee
1: and he's doing the same thing he used to do. He's fishing. After Jesus died, Peter gets fed up. He's like, Come on, guys. I don't know this whole thing about Jesus dead now. I thought we were following him into this new kingdom. What are we going to do? Let's go
2: back to what we've always known. Let's go back to fishing. And Jesus, from the shore this time,
1: as Peter and the others are in the boat, he calls out to Peter, and they can't recognize who it is, and he goes, hey friends, have you caught anything? And of course, they hadn't caught a thing, just like in Luke 5. Nothing, no fish.
2: And Jesus says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. and they do it and you know what happens in John 21
1: immediately their nets are overflowing just like in Luke 5 and Peter puts it all together much quicker this time and he realizes that that's no stranger that that's Jesus he, he's back. He's alive. I know, I know the only person who can do this is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. That's Jesus. I, th- I thought he was dead, but I see it now. That's him resurrected. And you know what Peter does? He doesn't say, oh, I can never see you, Jesus. Depart from me. You know what Peter does? He gets in the water and he swims to Jesus on the shore. Depart from me in Luke 5. Jesus, I need to be near you in John 21 what changed what changed he's a, here's a man who's still deeply aware of his own sin and failures but something changed his understanding of the gospel has changed He is more deeply aware of christ's heart towards sinners and failures and so instead of shrinking back he jumps in he wants to be near jesus and jesus is there because he wants to be near peter you see, the more we know of our sin, the more we know of Jesus, the more we'll actually run to him because we know that he's been running to us. He's the father in Luke 15 who when we come back, when we confess, when we admit wrong, he runs and, and, and wraps his arms around us and throws a party. And we're like, no, 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 I'm dirty. And I, and he's like, don't, I, I don't care.
2: I'm going to make you clean. Let me ask you, when you feel like you have blown it bad, when you yelled at a family
1: member or clicked on that website, when you feel like you're a failure, when you're holding that grudge and you realize, man, why am I treating my spouse so meanly? Why am I treating my child? Why am I treating my parent or in-law? Does that guilt drive you away from Jesus or toward Jesus? Does it make you say, I need Jesus now more than ever? I need to run to him because I know his heart toward me in this moment is not filled with condemnation, but love and grace. Or does it push you away from him, push you away from the church, push you away from his word and prayer?
2: Does your sin drive you to him or away from him? And your answer to that question will reveal your understanding of the gospel.
1: I've been reading this old book uh, written by one of the Puritans. His name is Thomas Goodwin. He was a pastor. He wrote this book in 1651. So it's a little bit dense, but it's so rich. And he says this towards the end of the book, this incredible claim. Quote, the glory, listen, just try to listen closely. The glory and happiness of Christ are enlarged and increased still as his members come to have the purchase of his death more and more laid forth upon them. So as when their sins are pardoned, and their hearts are more sanctified, and their spirits comforted, for he is the more glorified by it, yea, he is much more pleased and rejoiced in this than they themselves can be. And this keeps up in his heart his care and his love unto his children here below, to water and refresh them every moment." You see what Goodman is trying to say? He's saying that it actually brings God greater glory. It brings Christ greater happiness when we go to him to have our sins pardoned, to have our sufferings comforted. It brings him greater joy and honor than even us in our freedom, in our forgiveness. Meaning he's not just there going, all right, I'm gonna let you have it one more time. I'm gonna give you forgiveness. He's actually waiting. He's bursting to give you that kind of love. And grace. Your sinfulness evokes in Jesus' heart an irresistible and unrelenting love that draws him closer. And finally, lesson four, the love of Jesus will keep changing you so that eventually nothing becomes more precious to you than him. Look at verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to
2: land, they left everything and followed him. This is a dramatic moment. Peter experiences
1: the weight of his own sin, the wonder of Christ's forgiveness, the joy of joining Jesus and making disciples. But this calling would be costly. They were fishermen. They fished for fish. This was their career, their livelihood. This is what they knew. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have to leave that safety and security behind. The life that you've always lived, you're gonna have to leave it behind. You're gonna have to leave behind your old sinful ways that you just
2: confessed. You're gonna have to leave behind the right to call your life your own. And follow me. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. For these disciples, it was a
1: dramatic event. For some of us, maybe it's a once in a lifetime event like this, where you you have the opportunity. Right, you know, you, most of you know my calling to ministry, right? I, have a dr- I had a dream of being a medical doctor. I, I, I think I would have been good at it. I, I enjoyed it. I was gifted. It was. Uh, but, but listen, when God said, no, give up your dream, give up your desires, it was hard. I didn't want to do it. But the more and more the love of Christ for me, the joy of knowing him had become so precious that I, I at least in that moment, was willing to say, I don't even understand what I'm doing, but I'm going to give you my dreams. But listen, for most of us, including me since then, this leaving behind is a lifelong journey. Every season of life, every new year, God's going to call you. Will you keep treasuring me above all else? Will will my love for you be so deep? Will it be so transforming that eventually nothing is going to be so precious to you as following me? God will call you to give up things in order to pursue him as your greatest treasure. And the question is, what is that for you? What might God right now be calling you to leave behind for the sake of going
2: deeper in your walk with Christ? Is it a sinful relationship? A secret habit? A prideful arrogance? This facade you
1: put up so that nobody can come in? Make it look like you have it all together. Is it a fear of sharing your faith with others? A grudge against a fellow Christian? I I don't know. A debilitating anxiety around politics or COVID that's just kind of, that's just driving your life and Jesus saying, look, I want you to give that up. I need you to trust me in this. Listen, often the way in following Jesus will look like it's going backwards in order to go forwards. The path to going deeper in your walk will always, always involve letting go of certain things. But when you see the love of Christ, not just said to you, but shown to you, when you see the Son of God loving you by dying for you, when you feel the depth of what Jesus gave up himself in order to bring you home, Right? I know jo- I know jobs are stressful. I know families are, are, are messy and stressful. I know you're trying to figure out where do you live and what do you do with your life. I know you're trying to figure out all these things about the future. I get it. I'm dealing with all those things. But Jesus gave up everything for you. And he's simply saying, I don't mind. I'm going to tell you what the future. I'm not saying give up everything. I'm simply saying, trust me. All I'm saying is, trust me. If I showed you what's going to happen next year, five years from now, you might have a heart attack. I'm saying, trust me now. And trust that when you get there five years from now, I will have been preparing you by my grace to handle whatever that is. That's what he did on the cross. So that you might say, Jesus... I confess I need you as a Savior. I need you to rescue me from me. I need to be, ma- I need to be made whole, whole, made right. I need, to, I need to be able to know, as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Jesus, would you just say it's finished over my sin, over my future? Some of you who are watching or might be listening, you need to trust Christ right now for, as Savior. You need to experience His grace and freedom for the very first time. And for every Christian listening, we need to grow deeper through confession and experience a Savior who gently meets us right where we are and brings us into the freedom and joy in being His beloved children. Let's pray. Father, we need You. Through Your Son, Jesus, we need You. By Your Holy Spirit, right now, we need You. Every single person here is not here to just sit through this service and then go through the rest of their lives unchanged. I believe everyone who is here, everyone who is listening, who is watching, Maybe they've been distracted during the sermon. Maybe something else was on their mind. But right now, after your word has been proclaimed, after the gospel has been made clear, God, I know that your spirit wants to do a work that I could never do and that no one else could accomplish. If you can make fish abound out of nowhere, if you can restore Peter, the ultimate of failures, Jesus, if you can get up after being crucified, then we know you can do anything. We know you can bring freedom to those who feel like they're in bondage to sin. We know that you can bring healing to those who feel so wounded. We know that you can bring Forgiveness and honor to those who feel crippled by shame and guilt. We know that you can give peace for those who feel the crushing weight of anxiety and fear and worry. We know that you can bring unity to this church, to your bride to your family. Lord, I just ask that you would do what you and only you can do as we give our hearts to you. As we lay it before you, Jesus, right now, as every believer lays their heart before you, opens their heart up to let you work, to let you into every room. Lord, for those who don't know you, that right now they might cry out to you. Maybe they don't understand everything, but they understand that they have sinned and turned away from you and they need your restoration and that they would trust in Jesus. They would put their faith right now in the Son of God who died for them and will live with them forever. God, we know this isn't a game. This is a blood-bought reality. Do a beautiful work in our church as you have been, as you will do. What an honor and a privilege to know you and be a part of
2: your body of Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.